0: Good we in church, let us all stand for our scripture reading, and shall we turn our Bibles to um, uh, Psalms chapter 53, verse 1 to 3. So Psalms 53, verse 1 to 3. Yeah. So, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good, and God looks down from heaven from on all mankind to see if there is any who understand and any who see God. Everyone has turned away, all have been, become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. And now let's turn to our second passage on 1 John 4, verse 9-10. to 10. So 1 John 4, 9-10. to 10. <laughs> says this is how God showed his love among us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him this is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins
1: well a hearty good morning to you once again Let's uh, take time to pray and ask God's blessing as, once again, we open the Bible and look into his word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I recognize my own utter inadequacy to proclaim under my own steam the glories and the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I am asking for your Holy Spirit's enablement and anointing. Lord, may your word go forth in power for the sake of your glory this morning. And I pray for each hearer that you would open ears and perhaps uh, shine fresh light on the greatness of Jesus Christ, the greatness of his cross, uh, the utter need and necessity of it. And Lord God, may we leave this place astonished once again by you and by your plan and by your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It was on Thursday, May 23rd, 1940, that King George VI of England went on national radio to encourage the people of the United Kingdom to both repent, turn back to God, and also to ask the people to plead for divine help. King George, on that Thursday broadcast, further requested that the coming Sunday be made a national day of prayer. What was going on? Well, about two weeks before King George's call to prayer, the German army had launched fearsome attacks in both France and Belgium, and the British expeditionary force had been somewhat unprepared. And because of a series of events that did not play out well in favor of the Allied troops, by May 22nd, just one day before King George's call to prayer, the Germans had had effectively surrounded hundreds of thousands of Allied troops who now found their backs to the sea up in the north of France, nowhere to go, the German pincers closing in on them from every direction. It seemed that the fate of the Allies was sealed. It appeared that this would be nothing short of a massive, devastating massacre of hundreds of thousands of people and that the Germans would enjoy a resounding victory that potentially would change the entire outcome of the war. So on Thursday, King George calls England to pray, and on Sunday, massive numbers of people line up at churches and cathedrals, But on the night before, on the Saturday night, the evacuation order is given for Dunkirk Beach, where the Allies were trapped. And on Sunday, the same day that people across England are praying, the evacuation begins. The plan was to take the Allied troops and ferry them from Dunkirk Beach, 47 nautical miles across the English Channel, to England and to safety. And to do that, some 860 marine vessels were to be put into service, not only military boats, but also fishing boats and merchant ships and pleasure boats that belonged to civilians in England. The evacuation would end up taking about nine days. Now, for reasons that historians are still trying to figure out, Two days before King George's call to prayer, Hitler decided, rather strangely, to halt his Panzer Group. The Panzer Group, or the tank group, had been marching toward the beleaguered Allied troops, but Hitler had ordered them to stop. And also, strangely enough, On the Tuesday just after the Sunday prayer, even as the Allies were attempting to evacuate, the weather became so bad that the German Air Force was grounded. Yes, amen. (laughs) That storm allowed the Allies more time, and then the storm was then followed, strangely enough, by such a rare calm on the English Channel that it gave the Allies opportunity to evacuate thousands more troops. By the time the evacuation ended on June 4, 1940, a total of, listen to this, 338,226 troops had been safely evacuated. British, French, Belgian, Dutch, and Polish troops, and Prime Minister Winston Churchill then called for a national day of Thanksgiving, which happened on June 9th. By all accounts, the evacuation of Dunkirk was a miraculous escape, and of course, the story was featured in this summer's blockbuster film, Dunkirk. The Bible, which we Christians believe is the written revelation of God, tells us that the condition of every human being who has ever lived except Jesus of Nazareth is at least something like the condition of the trapped allied soldiers at Dunkirk. Helpless, hopeless, condemned to death unless some rescue plan, some plan outside of our own resources is hatched and executed successfully. This morning we are embarking on what will be, Lord willing, a ten-week reflection on the cross of Jesus Christ. Each week we'll take just a single New Testament contour of the cross and meditate together on the meaning and the significance of that particular contour. You'll notice in your bulletin, and I'll refer you there, that we have given you an insert today which looks a little like a a crossword puzzle, a small crossword puzzle. The title, Crosswords, is, of course, intentional. On that crossword grid, you'll see there each contour of the cross that we are going to be discussing over the ten weeks. And today's word, that word plan, is highlighted because the, the modest goal today is to open this series by talking about our predicament as human beings and the glorious plan that our triune God has hatched to get us out of the predicament. Next week, you're going to see the word sacrifice highlighted in bold letters because the cross as sacrifice is going to be our focus, and so on and so forth. The words, you'll notice, are all connected in the style of a crossword puzzle because as we're going to see, each contour or each concept of the cross is interconnected, is interrelated in a sort of organic way With the other ones. One way we can think of the cross, at least with the New Testament in our hands, is that the cross is sort of like a single diamond, but with many sides on it that each connect to the others and relate to the others in one way or another. The cross is about sacrifice, but it's also about reconciliation, and it's also about redemption, and it's also about conquest etc. So each week the plan is to hold up the single diamond that is the cross, but just to look at a single aspect of it like propitiation or substitution or justification or whatever it is. Now just a few moments ago we said that the condition of every human being who has ever lived, save Jesus of Nazareth, is at least something like the condition of the trapped allied soldiers at Dunkirk. Helpless, hopeless, condemned to death unless some rescue plan outside of our own resources is hatched and executed successfully. Let's begin here this morning by talking about the bad news, about our actual predicament as that predicament is described in the revelation of God in the Bible. We, get, we begin by simply noting with Dorothy Sayers that there is an undeniable deep interior dislocation at the very center of human personality. A deep interior dislocation at the very center of human personality. How? Why? Well, the teaching of Scripture is that the first man on the planet, Adam, was appointed by God to be the representative head of all human beings. So that Adam's defiance of God in the Garden of Eden has affected each and every one of us in a very real way And in a very profound way, as a consequence of Adam's sin, each of us has been born into a condition called sin. We are born sinners, and we commit actual sins. This is the Christian doctrine of original sin, which the poet W.H. Auden called The error bred in the bone. And we touched on original sin during our sermon a few weeks back on Psalm 51, especially when we were looking at Psalm 51, verse 5. To quote again the helpful definition, I think, of original sin given to us by J.I. Packer, he says, Sinfulness marks everyone from birth. And there is the form of a motivationally twisted heart prior to any actual sins. Packer says, this inner sinfulness is the root and source of all actual sins. And the sinful condition derives to us in a real, though mysterious way, from Adam our first representative before God. As Packer goes on to say, listen to this, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Born with a nature enslaved to sin. The hard truth of the matter, friends, is that I was born and you were born already bent Toward sinning, sinning against our neighbors and sinning against God. The human race, to quote John Henry Newman, is out of joint with the purposes of its creator. And the undeniable proof of that fact, says Newman, can be found in the mutual alienation of people. I mean, think of this for a moment. As Fleming Rutledge has pointed out in her book on crucifixion, no matter how inclusive we want to claim to be, there will always be somebody that we want to exclude, no matter who we are. The mutual alienation of people. Newman says the proof of original sin can be found in pervading idolatries amongst people, And, he says, in the aimless courses and random achievements and acquirements of people and in their short duration on this earth. Original sin, he says, can be found in the disappointments of people, in the success of evil in the world, in the mental anguish of people, and in the various corruptions amongst human beings. Human beings, after the fall of Adam, have been born into this condition called sin, and we all commit sins, plural, willfully. The Bible has a host of descriptions for sin. Let me take you on something of a whirlwind tour of the way sin is painted in the Bible, and here I'm helped in particular Uh, by the theologians Cornelius Plantinga and Michael Byrd. First of all, sin and sins are against God. We need to understand very carefully, even if we commit a sinful action that we think is solely against a person or persons on this earth, it is against God For the reason that God has commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves and violating another person is therefore a breaking of God's commandment to love neighbor as self, which means it's against God. Sin is willful violation of God's law. Sin is a deliberate rejection of the designs that God has for humanity. Sin is contempt for the goodness of God. Sin is a perversion of God's gifts. Sins in the Bible are actions, yes, but they're also compulsions. Sin is something bent or twisted. Sin, in the memorable words of Michael Byrd, is the Frank Sinatra syndrome. He says, sinful humanity wants to raise and shake its puny fists against heaven and declare, I did it my way. Sin is lawlessness, and sin is faithlessness. Sin is missing the target. Sin is wandering from the path. It is straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and sin is deafness. Sin, in the words of Cornelius Planica, is both overstepping a line and it is failure to reach the line. In other words, sin is both transgression and And it is shortcoming. Sin is a spoiling of goods. Sin is staining a garment. Sin is evasion of the call of God. Sin is abnormality in God's good creation. Sin is a disruption of the created harmony. And it is a resistance to the divine restoration of that harmony. Sin is folly. Sin is a crime. Sin is evil. Sin is an infectious disease that has attacked our spiritual immune system. Sin is fragmenting of the whole. Sin is Pleasurable, according to Hebrews eleven twenty-five. Our desire births sin, according to James one fifteen. Sin permeates our intellect, our wills, our hearts. Michael Bird says this: there is no cavern of our mind. No recess of our soul and no room of our heart that is not infected with the deadly virus of sin. This is the judgment of the Bible. And listen, friends, where most of us almost automatically think of sins, plural, as acts we commit, the Bible goes way further than that. And also describes sin, singular, listen, almost as if it's a personality, a wicked, dark, evil personality that has a life of its own, a totally malevolent agency. What do I mean? Listen very carefully to how sin is described in Scripture. God said to Cain in Genesis 4 7 that sin was crouching at the door and that sin desired Cain, but that Cain must rule over sin. Now to be crouching and desiring and wanting to rule it almost sounds like a person or a being of some kind. Does it not? And then listen to Jesus. In John 8.34 Jesus talked about people being slaves to sin. Almost as if sin is a living taskmaster of some kind. The Apostle Paul joined with Jesus in describing sin as a taskmaster. In Romans 3.9, Paul talked about all people being under sin, as if sin is some sort of ruling monarch. In Romans 6, Paul talks about being slaves to sin. Again, as Jesus did, he talks about being slaves to sin about four times. And he talks there in Romans 6 at least twice about being freed from sin, as if sin was a personal something that purposely has human beings in its clutches. In Romans 6.12 through 6.14, Paul talks about sin reigning as a king would reign making people obey its passions. He talks there about sin having dominion, again, like a king or like a ruler would have dominion. And in Romans 7.11, Paul talks there about sin seizing an opportunity, just like a personal being would seize an opportunity. Romans 7.20, Paul seems to almost separate himself from the sin that dwelt within him as if sin had some sort of separate personality to Paul. The point in all of this is that the teaching of Scripture takes us further than sin as misdeeds or sin as bad actions. To quote Fleming Rutledge as the New Testament presents us with revelation, it presents us with the revelation that sin is also an active, malevolent agency bent upon despoiling imprisonment and death. But now, friends, here's the thing. Listen carefully. We must not get too cozy in saying to ourselves, well, if sin is some sort of power or some sort of agency that enslaves me, I can say that I'm innocent. I'm nothing more than a pawn in sin's game. No, the thing is that according to Scripture, human beings after Adam are all, listen, exponents of the power called sin. We are in service to the power of sin. We cooperate willingly with it. Listen to the Scripture-saturated, Scripture-informed words of the reformer Martin Luther From his important book, The Bondage of the Will, this was written back in the 16th century, Luther said, listen, human beings do not do evil against their will under pressure as though they were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it, but they do it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which human beings, listen, cannot in their own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. I wonder at this point if our predicament as human beings is starting to come into focus. Our dire predicament evidences itself all over the place, does it not? I mean, think of, think of us for a moment Cornelius Planinga helps us see just how often and how common our sinful predicament shows its ugly head he says when people devise high-minded political fraud when a musician feels a spasm of happy satisfaction over the sour review of a colleague's recital When a drug dealer wants and plans the addiction of a fresh customer. When a teenager reviles his confused grandmother. When we put other people on a tight moral budget while making plenty of allowances for ourselves. When we human beings do these things, says Plantica, we exhibit a corruption of thought, emotion, intention, speech, and disposition. Yes, indeed. Most of us almost automatically want to point to the Hitlers and the Pol Potts and the Stalins of the world as the real sinners. But what about our own selfishness? and covetousness and pride and resentment and envy and jealousy and critical spirit and high-mindedness and addiction and abusiveness and fanaticism and rage and deceit and biting sarcasm and perfectionism, and lust. Our predicament as human beings, according to the revelation that God has given us, our problem, according to the holy standards of God, is that left to ourselves, none of us does good, Psalm 53, one. We have all fallen away and become corrupt, Psalm 53.3. None is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. None of us seeks God under our own steam, Romans 3.11. We love darkness, John 3.19. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick Jeremiah seventeen nine. We are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians two one, unless God comes along, listen, and rescues us, we will continue to take pleasure in unrighteousness, Second Thessalonians two twelve, and live blinded under the sway of Satan. 2 Corinthians four four, Captured by Satan and doing his will, Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.26 Following the deathly desires of the flesh even as we loudly like to proclaim our supposed freedom. I wish that was the whole of our predicament but it's not. Add to all of that the fact that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk 1.13 Evil may not dwell with God. Psalm 5.4 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. Romans 1.18 The whole sin-sick world is directly accountable to the holy God who made it. Romans 3.19 The judgment of God hangs over human sin. The wrath of God hangs over our sinfulness. Punishment must be meted out for human sin. Divine justice must be carried out. And so here we are at our Dunkirk. Our backs toward the sea, helpless. Our fate seems sealed. And especially considering the fact that all of us are already dead. In trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1, there can be no hope for corpses to save themselves. Fleming Rutledge, in her recent excellent book on the crucifixion of Jesus, summarizes our human condition before God by saying this. She says, from beginning to end, Read your Bible. From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irremediable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. Rutledge says further that we are sick unto death beyond human resourcefulness. She says, the human situation is so tragic that there is no answer from within history. There's no answer from within history. I don't care what president we elect. He's not going to be our savior. She says further, there is no escape, humanly speaking, from the hermetically sealed orb of the powers. We can only look for deliverance from another sphere of power altogether. And so the question is, how can we helpless human beings enslaved to sin be bought out and released from sin? How can we human beings, helpless as we are, condemned because of sin, be justified be declared not guilty before the just God who must punish our sin? How can we human beings estranged from God be reconciled back to God? How can the defiled become cleansed? How can the dead Be made alive. How can those trapped hopelessly be rescued? Since the time when Adam still stood in the Garden of Eden, God had been revealing the rescue plan for humanity that He had devised even before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. But in the garden, right after the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 315, God had promised that the seed or the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the deceiving serpent. And if you feel like saying hallelujah, that's okay. He'd crush the head of the deceiving serpent, even as that offspring of Eve himself suffered somehow. Even as he had his heel struck by the serpent. And then later in the Old Testament scriptures, there were passages like Psalm 22 and Psalm 3420. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109.25, etc. All of which prophesied in stunning detail, way before it happened, the suffering and death of a Messiah figure. And there was Isaiah 53 about a suffering servant who would be crushed for what? Crushed for our iniquities. Amen? Amen. And there was Daniel 9 about an anointed one who would put an end to sin. And there was Zechariah 12.10 and Zechariah 13.7 that spoke of some sort of shepherd figure who would be struck and who would be pierced. On the days before Jesus was born, an angel appeared to his father Joseph in a dream. And the angel said, listen to what he said, that this baby who would be born to Joseph and Mary would save his people not from a sour economy or from the Romans who were occupying the land, Rather, this Jesus would save His people from their sins. What we need to be rescued from, ladies and gentlemen, children, what we need to be rescued from more than North Korea, more than Hurricane Irma, more than anything else, is to be rescued from our sins. Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. How did John the baptizer announce the presence of Jesus? John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? Takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus came. That's what he came to do. To take away the taskmaster. To rid us of our evil to cleanse us of our filth, to set us free from our enslavement. And how does Jesus do this? Well, the plan from eternity, listen, the plan from eternity, first of all, the plan that was created and formulated in eternity by the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the plan was to carry out a rescue, listen, that would look and that would be commensurate with That would be proportionate with the sickness and evil in human nature that God wanted to heal. Have you ever noticed that the optics of the cross of Jesus Christ are proportionate to the optics of human sin? Again, I'm quoting Fleming Rutledge. She says this, there is something sickening in human nature. We've talked about that this morning. And she says it corresponds precisely to the sickening aspects of crucifixion. She says the scandal, the outrage of the cross is commensurate with the offense and the ubiquity of sin. The plan undertaken by the three persons of the Trinity was to put the second person of the Trinity on a cross. His naked human body and he was naked his naked human body ripped open from flogging his body writhing from the pain of spikes driven into it writhing from a lack of oxygen the son of God subjected to the shocking barbarity and vengefulness and cruelty of his human creatures. This is the outrage of the cross. People mocking him and people spitting at him and people degrading him, people purposely causing him as much humiliation and as much dehumanization as they Could The the optics of the cross, said God, the triune God from eternity, he said the optics of the cross would be proportionate to the optics of human evil. And in the midst, of course, Satan would have his hour where he could bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. But, of course, that's not all that was happening on the cross of Jesus Christ. No, aside from that, far above the evil of people, far above the evil that Satan worked in having Jesus hang on the cross, listen, God was sovereignly doing his work on the cross. Amen? His extraordinary work. You see, God knew... That the debt owed by us human beings, the debt of our sin, was simply and frankly unpayable by human beings. Only God himself could pay the kind of debt that human beings owed. But the problem was that we owed it. It had to be paid rightfully by human beings. God's solution what if God incarnated himself into human flesh so that you had a God-man? And what if that God-man was made sin, to quote the Apostle Paul, made to carry in his sinless self the sin of the world, as a substitute for sinners? And what if, as the God-man hung on the cross, God punished to death the sin of the world in that God-man? The God-man paying the debt that humans owed that could only really be paid in full by God, but had to be paid in human flesh. What if the Creator Himself were to act and to suffer for the sake of His creatures so that God's justice against sin could be carried out even while God's love for His human creatures could be poured out? What if the God-man Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, to quote First Peter 2.24? Friends, please hear me. The cross of Jesus Christ is exclusively the work of God's grace. To quote G.C. Burkauer. If you're a believer in Jesus, you know, I hope you know, that you bring absolutely nothing to your salvation except your misery. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We cannot and do not contribute to our salvation. The cross and the salvation that was secured there is the work of the triune God from top to bottom. It is a work of sheer divine grace, not to unmerited sinners, as we talked about in baptism class this morning, but to demerited sinners. We all have demerited status before God, and God gives us the grace of the cross. And the cross is the work of the triune God. We need to see this. The cross is not, I repeat, we need to understand this very carefully. It is not the son going reluctantly to the cross, pushed there by an angry, somewhat abusive father. The cross is not that. Nor is the cross some sort of extravagant length that the son has to go to in order to tease out forgiveness from an angry father who is reluctant to give it. The cross is not that either. It's neither of those things. We need to be very clear on that, and you'll probably hear me repeat that several times in this series. The cross was, what it was, was it was a Trinitarian plan agreed on unanimously and willingly and joyfully and unitedly in eternity by all three persons of the Trinity. Jürgen Moltmann called the cross an event within the Trinity. And Fleming Rutledge has said that the cross is a dramatic rescue bid. Listen to this. I love this. What is the cross? It's a dramatic rescue bid into which God has flung his entire self. Watch this, just in in our closing moments here. It was the love of the first person of the Trinity, the love of the Father, that motivated the cross of the second person of the Trinity. Where am I getting this? John 3.16. For God so loved the world God did that he gave, sent, gave his only son. So the father's love gives up the son to die. Or First John 4.9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, listen, that God sent. How do we know about the love of God? That God sent his only son. Notice in those verses how the love of the Father resulted in the sending of the Son and in the cross of the Son. Notice also how close-knit and unanimous Father and Son are in the cross. Watch this. Romans 8.32 says clearly that the Father, note that, the Father did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. So there, The Father gives up the Son or hands over the Son to death on the cross. Yet, over in Galatians 2.20, the one who hands over the life of the Son of God is not the Father, but rather it's the Son himself. Galatians 2.20 says that the son gave himself over to death and the same Greek verb for giving over or handing over is used in both Romans 8.32 and in Galatians 2.20. So then we ask, who gave the son over to death? Was it the father or was it the son? And the answer is yes, as Moltmann says, the two passage, passages taken together express, listen, they express a deep conformity between the will of the Father and the will of the Son in the event of the cross, as the Gethsemane narrative also records. Together, Father and Son surrender the Son on the cross. And together, listen, together, Father and Son suffer on the cross. Yes? The son suffers death, of course, but he also suffers fatherlessness for a brief time. And the father, for his part, suffers grief over his crucified son. Co-suffering as the cross happens. And the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the person of the Trinity who is tasked with convicting the world of sin and applying the cross to sinners in all ages. When one is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born again by the Holy Spirit, salvation and life come because of Jesus on the cross, his blood and his work there. The Spirit makes the salvation wrought by Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. He makes that reality a present reality for those who believe. The Spirit, willingly and with joy, what does he do? He draws constant attention to the Son of God. And in so doing, says Phil Riken, the Spirit thereby fulfills the Father's plan. See how the Trinity is involved in the cross. Riken says, how wonderful it is that the Holy Spirit does this work. Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation 2,000 years ago, but by the presence of His Spirit, God brings Christ to us right here and right now. Amen? If we want to, we could put the matter of the Trinity in the cross in the way that several authors have put it, that in the cross, the Father administers, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Again, the Father administers, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Well, our time is gone for today. But we've taken care of what we set out to do, which was simply to talk through our predicament and God's plan of rescue, our Dunkirk and God's initiative to free us. Next week, as we said, we will reflect on the cross as sacrifice, And our general purpose over all these weeks is simply to deepen into Christ and him crucified. To do as Charles Spurgeon once proposed, which is this, to abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. I love that. And all with the aim, friends, of increasing humility in our midst And fueling new depths of worship in us and causing us to go out into the world with fresh love and compassion for those who are yet dead in transgressions and sins. Let's pray together. Father, we stand at the foot of the cross, broken. Amazed and astonished, we praise you and we give you the highest thanksgiving for planning and executing this rescue mission in Jesus Christ and his cross. It is the most important event that has ever taken place in all of history. And we pray over these coming weeks that we would deepen into the mystery, abide hard by the cross of Jesus Christ and be transformed in the midst into people who love you increasingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May you lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. May you run with endurance the race set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Go in peace.